morning, Charged Up Studio listeners. Welcome back to another episode where you get charged up for success. I'm Dana Olivo, your host and CEO of Marketatomy LLC. No matter how experienced you are, one area that repeatedly repeatedly trips up small micro-business owners is accounting and taxes. You may be managing the money side of the business or your personal finance as well, but there are a lot of areas that still sneak up and surprise you. In fact, our guest today is so knowledgeable, she can trace back the history of our tax laws to when they were first introduced. CPA Betty Haas enjoys working with small micro-business owners helping them to set up their businesses, financial and accounting systems. Let's all please welcome to Charged Up Studio, Miss Betty Haas with Monroe Haas, PA. Hey, Betty. Good morning. It's good to hear from you. <laughs> you too. You too. You know, um, I sit here and when we and we talk about accounting and we talk about finances, and I just kind of go to sleep. You know, it's not. It's not my uh, my forte. I you know I never have been one who have liked numbers, but recently you presented on the history of taxes in the U.S. Yeah, I was doing it for a number of reasons. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And it fascinated me. So do me a favor and kind of let our audience know a little bit about what you found out or what you discussed during that presentation as far as the history of taxes. Well, sure. So just a little background. The reason why I was looking at it is my father had a birthday September 20th. And my presentation was right about that time. And I was, I, I was intrigued by, you know, 101 years ago, what life was like for him. And it made me look at history. And I'm thinking, wow, taxes back then were so different than now. Born in 1920, what did he face? Well, I looked back and I found that actually in 1861, there was uh, a tax act that came into place and it was 3% for those that had $800 or more of income in their household. But that was from 1861 to 1871. And then the United States uh, citizens revolted and said, no more taxes. So there were no taxes from 1872 onward And then in 1894, they tried to come back with another round of taxation. It was 2% for those with over $4,000 of income. But ironically, that legislation was struck down by the Supreme Court. They said, it's illegal. You can't do that. That's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. So then in 1909, we're getting closer to when my father was born. 1909, the income tax bill was attached to a tariff bill. Now, interestingly enough, that the conservatives were trying to not pass this bill, but they decided if we say that we'll agree with this um, income tax 
being added onto this tariff bill, then we know that it won't be passed because we know that people will revolt against the income tax. Well, to their chagrin, it passed. In 1913, oh they finally got it passed. So 1% oh of the population paid 1% income tax. And that set the precedent for having this complex, crazy tax system that we have today. And yes, it's legally allowed by the Supreme Court now. So, I mean, it's it's law now. It's it's legislation. We can't get around it now. Wow. So we're now up to an average of how much percent? From 1% to what? Oh, our highest rate now is 37%. I thought it was 33, 30, you know, somewhere in there. Oh my goodness. Now, I've heard this before and I've asked you this before, okay? Mm -hmm. Income tax, is it a contract? Is it a law in the sense where we have to pay income tax? Yeah, people are confused because it's called a voluntary tax system. Right. That means we voluntarily comply with the tax laws that are enacted. It's just like any other law that the legislature passes. You know, when you get enough votes in the House and the Senate and the president signs off on that bill, it's a law. It's law against, the, you know, across the board, just the way it's written. So, yes, we have we have to follow the law. It is a law. It's it's not your discretion whether you choose to follow or not to. Although there are a lot of people who don't. <laughs> there are a lot of people who don't. and. For some people, they slide under the radar for seemingly a long time. And, you know, it, it, it is true that sometimes people get by with things. But if, if you're like me, my luck is if I try to not comply with something that I'm supposed to, I'm going to be the one they get. So what good is it for me to try to not comply? <laughs> I mean, that's true. You know, if if, if uh, history tells us, you know, uh, eventually somebody's going to get caught and it's usually going to be either you or me. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Dan, and my father was a World War II veteran. He uh -huh. served in World War II. And during that time period in World War II, we had the highest marginal tax rate. Do you want to guess what it was or do you remember what it was? You mentioned it, but what is it? 94%. 94%. Oh, my gosh. Yes. During World War II? During World War II, it became the highest rate was 94%. That was the wow. highest marginal rate. And it remained as high as 91% well into the 1960s. Now, I'm going to tell my age, but that, that's where I come into plays in the 60s, okay? I was the last of the baby boomers, I believe. And, um, yeah, that's so... Kennedy came in and, and everything else, so... So when Reagan became president in 1981, and I remember this very vividly, okay, he slashed the taxes and the marginal rates go from 71, uh, go down to 70, from, excuse me, from 70% down to 28%, okay? So in 1981, we had a tremendous decrease. Wow. Okay, and mm -hmm. then 
we went to another administration with the Clinton administration and they bumped it back up to the 39.6% rate. And then with the uh, Trump administration, you know, it went back down to the 30, uh, yeah, to the 37% where we are today. Now the question, Dana, is where will rates be next year? That's Here true. We are. For 2021, we don't even know what our rates are going to be like for 2021. If they enact something between now and the end of the year, it could be uh, effective now. They could make it effective at the beginning of the year, which I don't think is going to happen, but that's just my personal opinion. Or they can make it effective for next year <laughs> and for some period beyond. So I will... I how will the fact that they have opened it up and they're printing more money, how is that going to affect, affect our taxes? So that's interesting because usually when you print more money, then that means that there's more credit. That means they're wanting people to be able to spend money and do things like that. So presumably with more money being out there, there's going to be a bigger GDP, which means they'll be able to collect more taxes. That's the presumed factor. What's really going to happen, Dana? You tell me. <laughs> the government is struggling to bring money in right now. Yeah. And right now, you know, the stories that I'm hearing out there, um, and this is from, you know, my, my, um, uh, my Keo, my, my 401 investment banker, you know, and things like that, is they're starting to think that the government is starting to get creative about the way that they're going to collect these taxes. You know, they're talking about um, uh, restricting uh, the self-directed IRAs and 401ks mm -hmm. because they don't like the fact that we're self-directing and earning more income or interest than traditional you know, that type deal. So they have no control over it. They, the same thing with cryptocurrency and a lot of these things, they're really, you know, so they're, they're, they're becoming a lot more creative in the way that they are trying to collect their money, you know, which brings up one of my biggest concerns, okay, okay. is the fact that, you know, we're coming up through COVID for the last two years and with what I am such a um, on such a mission to turn things around is small business, okay? Because these are the people who are going to get affected with a lot of this, be affected with a lot of these taxes and things like that. And I can't understand for the life of me why they are going after the traditional means of collecting taxes, which have not worked as well. And rather than going back and doing what they can with the existing infrastructure, meaning small businesses and things like that, and helping them succeed so that money will be pumped back into the GDP mm -hmm. and our labor force and things like that. Why are they ignoring that? Oh, I can't tell you what they're thinking because their mindset and my mindset are two opposite ends of the spectrum. Right. But I can tell you that um, they have many, many ways to accomplish what they are trying to do. Even if they didn't raise the tax brackets, you know, when I was talking about the marginal tax brackets, they don't have to raise that marginal tax bracket. 
to raise the taxes on someone. So instead of uh, having the proposed tax rate, let's say from 20% capital gains to 25% or 28% like it used to be, they can just limit what qualifies for capital gains. Right. They can, right. They can change corporate tax rates from the current 21% to 25%, but right. they don't have to do that. They could just say, well, okay, we're not going to allow any charitable contributions or we're not going to allow any meals or we're not going to allow, because they don't allow entertainment anymore. You know that, right? Yeah. So yeah. all they have to do is identify a, a unit that is not going to be deductible. Penalties are not deductible. Political contributions are not deductible. What, they could just name some other areas that are not deductible and they've done the same thing as raising your tax rates. Wait a minute. You said that entertainment's not deductible anymore? It hasn't been deductible since 2018. Entertainment is not deductible. So meals, <laughs> meals are allowable if they're for a business purpose. They have been allowable at the 50% rate. Okay. Different than entertainment. So okay. we have new rules on meals for 21 and 22, though. Meals for 21 and 22 because of COVID are 100% deductible, which is unheard of. We've, in my lifetime, I've never seen meals 100% deductible. Okay. I don't remember ever seeing that. Wow. But, but they are 100% deductible for meals in a restaurant. Um, that's that's the caveat. It has to be meals, business meals. The purpose for business in a restaurant is 100% deductible for 2021 and 2022. Okay. Wow. But now you, your question about the entertainment part is that so if you go to a ball game or you go golfing or something to a museum, um, I'm trying to tell you some of the things I've seen coming across my desk. Those are not deductible. Go to a play in New York. Those are not deductible because that is entertainment and entertainment is not deductible. What if the entertainment is set up as a nonprofit sponsorship? Then I would suggest to the business owner that they want to have their name and logo printed somewhere so they can do it as advertising rather than okay. That explains it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this this is why I don't like this because it is so confusing. And, and and people will say my job is confusing too, you know, but it's because I know it left and right. It's not confusing to you because you know it left and right, you know, and you're excited about this. I just, it's just so overwhelming and, <laughs> you know, but anyway, so we're here to, with Betty, to talk about as small micro business owners, what are some of the, the things that can crop up that can surprise us and preparing for these? So let's get into some of our questions, okay? Um, right off the top, Bet Betty, um, if I was just starting my business and not sure of the best way for it to be structured for tax and liability purposes, how would you do that? Well, I would first consult with a professional because you don't know what you don't know about it, right? But once someone comes to me and says, Betty, how should I be structured for my business? Because I get this great idea and I want to do it. I ask them questions. You know, what have they planned for their 
gross income? What do they plan for their expenses? And from that, we decipher what their probable net income is going to be. You and I both know that things don't always go as planned. So sometimes we hedge our bets <laughs> and we say, well, if this, then this. But my rule of thumb is generally if they're US citizens, green card holders, or if they are going to meet the substantially present test for foreign people that are working in the United States, then they could be an S corporation for tax purposes, even if they are an LLC. And people say, what? <laughs> they just scratch their heads and say, what do you mean? So I have to go back and explain what an LLC can do versus what a S corporation is. And so we go through that example and that, that scenario. Once we determine that yes, an LLC is the right fit for them, or a corporation is the right fit for them. Then the next question is, can you elect to be an S corporation? Because if so, generally, you can save quite a bit in payroll taxes by doing that. Because not all of the money taken out from the business has to be through a payroll means. If you're an S corporation, you can take distributions or otherwise known as dividends. And those are not subject to payroll taxes. So right off the bat, generally oh. I can help people save half of the taxes they would pay as a sole proprietor. So, so, so becoming an S corp for tax purposes for would definitely save some money um, if we're looking at um, uh, getting income out of dividends and things like that on the right. on the business. Okay. Now, there's a lot of factors that play into it. Yeah. So yeah. We, we have to have a good idea where you're going. And that's where you come into play when you help business owners plan their business so that they right. have a good idea where they're heading to rather than just some, you know, dream in their head that never gets put on paper. They will be able to answer my questions a lot better. Right. Right. So one of the things when we're talking about payroll and, and payroll taxes and everything, one of the things that I work with my clients on, when we start talking about contract labor versus employees, mm -hmm. okay, um, then I start talking about, okay, when is the time to switch over from contract labor to full-time employees? What would be your response to that? The IRS has a 20-point test that you have to meet, even if you're just talking about one person for a very limited amount of work. I mean, the IRS says, if you, if you have someone do work for you at all, you have to put them in the right bucket of employee or subcontractor from the very beginning, no right. matter if it's an hour, okay? That's the rule. So you look at whether or not someone is directing managing, telling somebody how to do, what to do, when to do, to do it. Um, if they have to use the company's equipment or they use their own equipment, does the, does the company provide them any kind of benefits or not? Right. Um, does the person working have their own business set up or are they working as a sole proprietor for other people? Do they have business cards with their company's uh, information on it? Do they bill by invoices or do they 
use uh, a timekeeping system to keep track of their time to be paid as an employee might do. All these factors come into play, but it all really boils down to a couple of points that are so highly weighted that any of these other things you might get by on by doing them. But if you don't meet some of these really high priority areas, you still won't be a, a non-employed. You know, you won't be a contract right. laborer. Right. You have to meet the test of being at risk to be a non-employee. Meaning that your boss at work, when you work as an employee, has the risk of making money or losing money, right? Okay. If you are the subcontractor, you have to similarly be at risk of being able to make money or lose money. Right. Okay. If you're an employee, you work the hours, you're going to get paid. You do the job, even if it's piecework, you're going to get paid by law. They have to pay you. If you're independent, you don't have a guarantee. You right. may think you've got a contract that tells you you're going to make some money, but you're still at risk. I have seen it way too often. You have a contract and yet something happens. You buy equipment, you hire staff, whatever, and you, you're going after this one big contract that you've got, and then something happens and that contract gets canceled for whatever reason. You right. now got all these employees or you got this equipment you're having to pay on and you are at risk. Whereas if you were the employee, you would not be at risk. Right. You would have right. been paid for the hours that you worked and boom, you're done. Right. You're done. So, you know, keeping on this topic now, if I am working with a contract uh, person, you know, contracting with somebody, where is that fiscal line where you would consider uh, hire, either hiring the, that person or hiring another person full-time? Okay, that's a good question. You're going to pay self-employment tax or payroll tax, I should say, which is 7.65%. Plus, right. you've got the factor of workers' comp to consider depending on what industry you're in, whether you have to have somebody from the get-go in, as in the construction industry, you know, even you yourself are considered an employee of your LLC or of your corporation. So if you're in the construction business, you have to either elect out of workers' comp immediately or you have to be covered by workers' comp because of the industry you're in. Now, if you're in a consulting company, that's not the same. You can have wait until you got three employees before you would have to have workers comp. Right. Mm -hmm. So the decision on whether you're going to hire someone as an employee or whether you're going to hire them as an independent contractor really kind of boils down to how you're going to use them. If you can structure it to where they can be independent, sometimes that's good because you get to save that 7.65%. You don't have to worry about the workers comp you don't have to worry about benefits. Normally, if somebody's working as an independent contractor, they want to be paid more than a salaried individual will be paid because they know they're at risk. They know that they've got taxes to pay and they know that they're going to be responsible. At least if they know what they're doing, they know these things. So right. you might be paying a, a subcontractor more for that reason. 
So then it really boils down basis, to, yeah. yeah, yeah, on an hourly basis, yes. Yeah. It boils down to whether or not it makes sense for your business to be paying that additional amount to someone as an independent contractor, or is it better for you to have someone on staff? And in my accounting world, accountants don't get paid overtime, believe it or not. They're one of the exempt people. So, <laughs> so it, it makes more sense for me to hire an employee than to have an independent contractor for much of the work because it I don't have to pay overtime to my staff. Right, right. Well, and what I tell my clients is, you know, when you're first starting out and your overhead, you know, you, you can't afford that much, you know, you're better off you know, going with contract labor, that way it can, it can be halted at any time, you know, that type deal. And plus, you don't have to worry about workers comp, you don't have to worry about benefits, you don't have to worry about any of these additional costs. But there comes a point where um, what you're paying for the contract labor far outweighs what you would be paying if yes. you were to hire them full time. And when that happens, you have to think seriously, okay, if I add in the workman's comp, add in the benefits, add in everything, social security, everything that I need to, and that base rate mm -hmm. is still better than what you're paying the contract labor, you know, then it's a matter of, you know, making that decision. I agree wholeheartedly with you. It, you just have to weigh it out because there are factors that, that, come into play. I mean, you don't even think about all the little things, but you know, at Christmas time, you do a, a bonus for your employees. Well, that has to be calculated into the benefit package. I have, uh, I have developed a compensation package plan that I list everything that I pay on behalf of my employees to have them sitting in a seat in my office. Right. When you start looking at everything that goes into that, having that person in that seat, and then you get to the total compensation package at the bottom, including all the taxes and the insurances and the workers' comp and the everything else, and you show the employee that, yeah. even my staff who see it on a daily basis with you know clients having their work come in and we work on it, when they see it for themselves of what it costs me to have them sitting in that chair, it opened their eyes and they went like wide open, like, wow, yeah. I didn't know yeah. it cost you that much. Yeah. Yeah. No. And a lot of, a lot of employees do not understand that. And so they're always going back saying, you know, I need more money. I need more money. Yeah. I understand their side of it, but they're not looking at when the employer says, you know, it's just not in the budget right now, you know, or something like that. So there's got to be a way of communicating, you know, to your employees that look, you know, I, I respect, you know, what your needs are and we're, we'll work on it. But you've got to understand where we're coming from, from our side, too, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, <laughs> it's amazing uh, when you sit down and you do add it all up. Sometimes you can be creative in the way you um, help your employees so that it's not necessarily a taxable event to them and it can be beneficial to you as a deduction on the company side. And that's, that's where I call it the sweet spot because when you can find things that you can pay on their behalf, you get the 100% deduction 
they don't have to claim it as income. Woohoo! That's a win-win for you and yeah, the employee. Definitely. Okay. So a lot of these small micro business owners, when they first start out, um, they often don't pay themselves. Okay. Um, because they're just worried about running out of money, you know, or not having the money, you know, that type deal. And there's a couple of things that I do tell them, you know, first of all, um, what I tell them is if you're not going to pay yourself, okay, um, if you're going to go for funding or whatever, that's not going to look good for the investor or whatever. They want to see you paying yourself. Even if you pay yourself and then put the money back into the company mm-hmm. as a loan. So let me, thought, share with, yeah, let me share with you what the government's position is. And I don't right. care if it's the state or the federal. They believe that if you're working in your business, let's say that you've got a corporation or an LLC being taxed as a corporation, they expect that you are going to receive a salary, a reasonable salary, even if you're just starting out. Now, how much should that be? I can work with my my clients and figure out what what could a reasonable salary be. And we can make it arguable to the government. Mm -hmm. And I won't take a position that I can't argue. I just, I'm that way. Right. So the answer is yes, you need to take something, even if it's small, in order to meet the requirements of having had a reasonable salary. Right. Sometimes that comes into play for other reasons, as you know, if you're trying to get loans or whatever right. they want to know that you've got income coming off of there. Um, right. So, and sometimes it affects not when you're first starting, you're probably not going to be putting money into a retirement plan unless you have really planned well and are doing well from the get go. But when mm-hmm. it comes to retirement plans, your salary is a very key component in how much you can contribute. For many different plans, right? Um, And and like you said, you know, um, and and as I tell my clients, you know, like I said, even if you pay yourself, but you don't hold on to the money, you put it right back in into the company. You're showing a track record of making money Mm -hmm. uh, for yourself, a paycheck for yourself. So for loan purposes or whatever, you know, you have that that information. And it's showing what a reasonable, prudent person would be paying for that position right. to be filled. It, it's unreasonable to think that a business can run itself with nobody doing anything. Right, right, right. And um, so here's a couple of things that um, that consistently come up. First of all, uh, the uh, cross-contamination of the bank accounts. You know, so many people, you know, so many small business owners, you know, do not understand the importance of keeping those separate, keeping the the company. And then the other thing is credit cards. Mm -hmm. You know, in the very beginning, it's difficult to get a credit card for a new business. You know, how do you recommend that they um, um, get business credit cards? You know, that type of deal. Okay. So let's start with the first one about the cross-contamination, which is a really bad thing. Right. Mm -hmm. If you look at it from a legal perspective, I've had attorneys tell me this before, your 
LLC or S corporation structure is in jeopardy if you cross contaminate because wow. all the opposing attorney is going to have to say is, Your Honor, that's a sham company because look, they're just using it as if it's their personal. So we can go ahead and sue them personally for everything. So that LLC that you set up for liability purposes is gone because right. you messed it up. You blew it. That barrier is gone. Yes. Yes. Now, as far as getting the credit goes, I don't know. When, when I would start out, I would certainly try first for either an American Express or another Visa MasterCard. If they turned you down for having a company card, I would say, can we, can we do a personal signature, like a personal guarantee on it and have a low balance, you know, just to get started on. If that's not feasible, go for a prepaid card if you have to somehow. If nothing else, have one personal card for personal use and one card that's under your personal name used for the business use. That's the that's the path of least resistance, but it at least shows you were trying to delineate this card was being used for business purposes and this one was being used for personal. And as soon as you can convert over to a company card, then do so. Yeah, that's what I've been doing in the past is I may have two personal cards, but one of them is set aside straight for business purchases and the other one is my personal one, you know, as far as that's concerned. Um, so how, as a small business owner, how can I avoid paying uh, income tax or all of this income tax? I wish there was a way to get out of all taxes. All totally. of it, Yes. <laughs> Not usually the not usually the the case though. If so, that means there's something strange that has happened, and usually not a good thing if you get out of all of your tax. But there are things that can be done to reduce your taxes. As a business owner, you can choose to buy more things before the year end, which is typically a year end strategy. However, I'll tell you this year, it's not my strategy because we believe that tax rates are going up. Why would I take a deduction for something this year that I could put off until January of next year and get more of a tax benefit from next year? So although normally I would have a use it, you know, take the deduction now, if I really believe the tax rates are going up next year, which I do, I'm, I'm going to save that deduction until next year. I'm going to pay the taxes at the lower rates this year and just, you know, ante up. Uncle Sam, you got it from me this year, but next year I'm going to get you. Um, so that's an unusual position. And I don't usually recommend that to people, but that's kind of the position I'm taking this year because I so firmly believe that we're going to be seeing tax rates going back up at least to the 39.6% rate. We may, we, we already know that there's some credits that are being talked about going away. And so as they take away tax credits, that's the same thing as raising tax rates, mm. okay? So I'm going to prepare myself as best I can for those situations. Um, so what else can you do to re reduce your taxes? Take advantage of the tax credits that are available. You know, right now, some businesses need to look and see if they qualify for that employee retention credit that was offered through the um, COVID CARES Act. Mm -hmm. Some don't even know about it. And that's sad when they don't know about it. I can't believe that we went through 
a year and a quarter of COVID and some people came to me and had never known that they could get a PPP loan. I was thinking they must have had their heads stuck in the sand somewhere. Yeah. That was so well advertised. And yet I have found people who qualified for it, but never knew and didn't take it. Wow. That's really sad. So stay right. aware. And if you don't have time to be aware, get a professional to help you so that you don't have to know that stuff, but they can be the ones responsible for telling you. Right. We try to send a, an annual tax letter out to our clients, giving them things to have heads up on changes in uh, minimum wage, um, changes in any of the tax laws, things to look out for that we think are important in the economy or, you know, just general right. business savvy tips. So aligning yourself with someone who can keep you abreast of those kind of things is really important. Right. So some specific areas that you might look at if you're large enough to have a health insurance plan is consider a health reimbursement account or consider an HSA account. If you're big enough, a flexible spending account, but that's usually for a little larger than the micro people. Mm -hmm. um, start off with an with a IRA. I mean, one of your best options is a Roth IRA. It doesn't save you the tax dollars now, but it's going to save you lots of tax dollars down the road. Right. If you can, if you can think long term, that is one of your best friends is to think Roth. Okay. Right. For today, some other things you might do is hire your immediate family. Mm -hmm. Especially children that are minors are wonderful ways to shelter some income, give them the opportunity to learn about finances and how to save and how to spend. So it can be a great opportunity for parents, especially to help their children learn rather than just giving them an allowance, have them take out the trash, have them do social media for you, have them be a, a face on your website uh, so they can get paid. Have them, you know, answer the phone, have them do filing and clerical administrative tasks. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, have them stuff and fold envelopes and, you know, whatever right. it is that you need them to do. Give them a fair wage so that they then can contribute to their IRA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and they can have that growing for a long time if they put it into a Roth tax-free when they retire. Right. That's, right. that's the best of the world, I tell you. Yeah, yeah. So um, what about um, when we were talking about building credit for your company, okay? What if you were to lease a car or buy a car in the company name? Okay. So the first thing I'm going to tell my clients is remember the liability comes along with the car because it's your number one asset that's going to give you a a lawsuit if there's an accident. So I, I would be very cautious in that regard, but if you're going to put a company car in the company name, make sure you have a sufficient insurance. And then number two, regarding your credit question on that, if you buy a car and you've got the credit to buy the car and you've made your payments on that vehicle, like any other loan that you would have, it's going to be building your credit. If you're leasing and you're making your payments timely, it's going to be building your credit. Businesses, businesses 
can have a Dun and Bradstreet credit report. I don't know how familiar you all might be with that, but it's not as um, widely known and used as your personal credit score. But if your personal name is associated with the vehicle that you're buying, it's your personal credit that is at risk, probably. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Or you have another thought or question? No, no, that's exactly it. You know, um, as far as that's concerned, even with starting out, even if you were to lease a car, you'd still have to do it in your own personal name until you, you know, yes, right, right. So if a small business owner was to come to you, okay, how could you help them qualify for a loan, first of all? But getting their financial statements in good order is the first thing, making sure that we have a, a track record of what they have done so far if they have already been in business and they're coming to me. But if they've never been in business, the first thing we're going to do is have a business plan put in place. Right. The right. Business plan is critical. And I don't necessarily do the business plans for my clients that come to me because usually micro uh, companies need to have it done through another source because I'm going to cost them more than they want to pay and more than they can afford to pay probably. So I don't mind working with other people to help them get that business plan going, but we want to make sure that the business plan makes sense. It has good financial data, good marketing data, good history of the person, the profile, because the business is selling the idea of what it's going to be able to do for someone to want to be able to lend money to it. And that's one of the things that we do at Marketatomy is we help them build those business plans by going through the courses, what they're learning and customizing for their own businesses. A lot of that can be incorporated into the business plan. Right. You know, that's what we're trying to do. So, um, and then a good fit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, um, what else should I know about my finances and taxes as far as business is concerned? What other things can you? Sure. Any, any a, couple of things, a couple of things come to mind. Most business owners don't seem to know that they should keep receipts. They know they've got their bank credit card, uh, bank statement or their credit card statement, and they think that's good enough. But if you're audited, you, may, you need to have that receipt. And especially for meals, you need to write on the receipt who it was and what it was about. And, you know, so you have who, what, when, where, why on that receipt. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't put the business purpose and who you were with on that receipt, the government's not going to give you that deduction. Right. Looking at your credit card statement or bank statement, they can't see that information. Right. See the receipt. And, you know, then we run into the problem, whereas a lot of receipts that I get end up fading before the year end. Okay, so by scanning it first, right, that's that's good enough proof. Yes, absolutely. So you can scan it in and keep it in your computer file or you can buy a program or an app that will allow you to scan it and it'll sort it actually. Expensify comes to mind. I've got a few clients that use that and most of them are quite happy with it. Now, you, there's some setup that you have to do to, 
to get it going in the right category. So my recommendation to my most recent client, who is a nonprofit, by the way, is let's set up your chartered accounts so that you know what we want to see them categorized in. And then in your Expensify, every time you get a receipt, you can just put it in that category. Now, the, the trick comes in when a receipt from Walmart might go into two or three different categories. So, you know, there's some hurdles you have to come come through in order to be 100% accurate. But really, if you get to, if you get 90% of it right, the government's going to forgive it being in the wrong place for the other 10% as long as it's deductible. <laughs> yes, yes. So we're coming up on the conclusion of another episode of Charged Up Studio. Betty, can you let our listeners know how they can reach you should they wish to? Oh, sure. Um, you can reach me through the internet at our website, uh, www.munroecpa.com. So munroecpa.com. Or you can contact us by phone at 407-291-2700. And we have a wonderful web portal um, that's connected with our website for our clients to use so we can interact uh, with emails and documents very securely. It's a, a great tool that we are using. Um, so contacting us, if you want to fax, we got fax. We get information every which way you can. Email. Um, my email address is bhaas at monroecpa.com. So that would be B-H-A-A-S as in Sierra at Monroe, M-U-N-R-O-E, cpa.com. Okay. Okay. Now that you, huh? Or they can contact you and say, "Who was that lady?" <laughs> so I'm going to put you on the spot again, Betty. Okay. Um, we often will do informational webinars. Okay. Um, and I'm interested. A lot of my listeners and people, when it comes to their finances, they have difficulty reading their P and Ls their balance sheets and things like that. Would you be willing to come back and do a webinar, a 60-minute webinar, teaching some of our people how to read these P&Ls and read the, their balance sheets and things like that? Okay. I'd like to do that. Do that? Okay. I, I, love, I love the teaching just like you do. So. Yes. If I can communicate better with my clients by educating them so they know when I'm talking about the changes in their financial statement and they know the terms that I'm using, uh, we're far better off. And if I can help somebody in in their business growth, I want to. Well, great. That's what I'll do is I will set up a webinar. Just watch uh, marketatomy.academy for that uh, date and time coming out in the future. Um, But that concludes our podcast for today. So please leave a review on any of the streaming platforms you're listening to us on now or go to Charged Up Studios Facebook page and leave a review there. Charged Up Studio is a product of Marketatomy Academy, the e-learning system designed specifically with the micro business owner in mind. For more information, And to register for many of our courses, go to marketatomy.academy. That's it for today, folks. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.